All right. So here we are. Another episode. Yeah. Uh, you know, one of the things that I loved about this episode was how we got schooled. <laughs> we did. I don't think we got schooled. How'd we get schooled? Well, Donna said a lot about her culture and gave us a whole framework of the way things work in New Orleans. And we asked some some good questions to help us, you know, get a little bit of an education. And so I just want to acknowledge the the labor she took to kind of correct our, our misconceptions about the, the second line and, and the various things about Mardi Gras. And the Indians. Yeah. Yep. Um, and it was a fascinating conversation. I'm, um, I knew it would be good because of course I have a lot of affinity for single mothers having been raised by one. And I was really excited to hear about this, this person's life and to get, get their story and uh, once again, we uh, lucked out. We just got this person is just so generous with their point of view and their insights and what drives them. And I'm just grateful. So with no further ado, here we go with Donna D. Episode 124. Two outlaws on the land. Taking the back roads through America. You can't drink enough coffee for this show. <laughs> and now it's time for Monday Madness with the Moped Outlaws, Greg and Mark. And we're live with another episode of Moped Outlaws. And today we have very special guest, Donna D, a.k.a. the Urban Mommy. Hello, everybody. Welcome, Don. It's great to have you here. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah. So where are you in the world? So I'm in New Orleans right now. Yes. Yeah, you are. <laughs> I'm in New Orleans. We're about to have some bad weather. Well, we have a cool front coming, so I'm guessing like 80, 81. <laughs> wow. Oh, I cannot live like that. <sighs> I know, right? Crazy. And Mask, like just briefly looking at your stuff, are you a single mother? No. Okay. I was, but uh, I've been maybe about two years. I've been actually not single. <laughs> That's very nice. Congratulations yeah. on that. For a while, but I was a single mother for the most part. For most of my raising my kids, I was a single mother. So that's why I have a lot of experience in being a single mother and still working. But within the last two years, I've been uh, married. So it's difficult. So that oh. that is a, another story all in its own, just being a single mother, trying to raise kids. You have to be very careful because you do want to have a life. You do want to date, but you can't just date anyone. Even if you want to just go on casual dates, you have to be very careful. You know, you can't bring everyone around your kids. It's I have a daughter. I mean, I have sons, too, but I have a daughter. So I have to be very I had to be very cognizant of what I would do, what I was doing because she is watching. Yes. And this gentleman whom you're now married to is. Do your children look to him for father elements in their life? Um, yes, for the most part, they do because he's been around for so long. So my daughter is now 10. She was probably about four or five when she met him. So she's been knowing him for a long time. And she does, you know, she'll probably say that's my stepdad. Um, so she's very into it. My son is older. He's he looks at him as well. In his life. So, you know. He we lost you for a second there. That's okay. How does your son look at, at your current husband? Repeat that. Oh, sorry. Yes. He looks at him like it's like a stepfather because his father is more heavily involved in his life. So he does have that uh, father figure that's already there. So he does look at my husband like, you know, just a stepfather. And I, I was frightened at one point because it's kind of hard when you have teen boys and then you bring in a man into the relationship. So. It was. I was kind of scared how that would work, but it's 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 pretty good. It's pretty good. And um, did you and your first husband retain a friendship and a co-parenting relationship together? Pretty much. Yeah, we're pretty good. It was 
tumultuous at times, but as we got older, we did have to finally come together to realize that it was about the child and not about our petty nonsense that we had going on. So we were able to put it to the side. And it actually happened when my son uh, maybe he was a 12, 13. He was kind of going through that boy phase where they want to misbehave and I needed him. So I needed to, I needed him to step in more and I had to step down because as a single mother, and I called myself at that point a single mother because I had him the most, you know, most of the time and I was doing most of the rearing for him and I had to discipline him. But my form of discipline was not working. He needed a man that was going to be stern and his father, you know, had to step up. His father is military. So it wasn't that he wasn't there because he didn't want to be there. He was there. Be- he wasn't there because he was working. So, I mean, as when you, as a kid growing up, it doesn't really matter if they're not there because they don't want to be or if they're not there because they're working. All the kids sees is that they're not there. Yeah. I'm curious about your view on how important what you can, what you said was stern was the word you used, but there's an aspect of the male rearing that feels like it's really important to an adolescent boy. And how do you see that framework? Like, do you see it as like a thing that is super hard for single moms or impossible for single moms? Well, I think that single moms, that kind of became a thing around the eighties and the nineties. And I mean, I was growing up at that time and I saw a lot of it. It was necessary. So it was, it was never that we did that. It was impossible because it was something that people, so many people were doing each day, raising kids, raising boys to be men, but that was in the eighties and the nineties. Now we're in 2023 and it, to me, I think it's much more difficult to raise kids, to raise, you know, boys. And then of course, obviously I'm black. So it's really hard to raise, you know, black boys because there's so much that goes on that we have to teach them. And it's stuff that I can't explain to them that they have to go through. And I mean, it's a sad reality, but it is one. And we have to, you know, teach our kids that. Yeah. Being black in the South is a very challenging experience from what I understand in observation an observation of it. In what ways are you grateful for your husband and the father of your son in the way that they're administering the kind of male rites of passage to your adolescent son? I'm super grateful. Like I said, because at one point I thought that I could do it all. And I actually wanted to do it because, you know, co-parenting can be hard sometimes if you have, you know, my son's, my his father is Hispanic. So we have two different customs and stuff that's going on. So sometimes we do things differently. So I was kind of happy that I was doing most of it. And I had, because I didn't have to ask him for anything. I would just be like, okay, I want to do this and I would just do it. But now I have to make consideration for whatever I'm doing. And I have to say, what do you think? What should we do? So I am very happy that I actually have that opportunity to actually go to someone and that they can, you know, fill in and help because it's, it's terribly hard. We do it. And a lot of people become independent and single mothers, not because they want to, but it's more of like a survival thing. And then we do it and then we get really good at it. And then we think that that's how it's supposed to be, but it's really not. Well, coming from a family where my mom raised myself and my sisters, and there was not the kind of male role model that I would have liked, i.e. a strong, masculine, like warrior type, like your partner or your former partner. Mm-hmm. And uh, so for me, I've personally understood within the limits of white privilege what it's like to have that missing. And so it's really, it really touches my heart when I hear about a young man who's facing that. And then when you add on that, the experience of, of, you know, cultural and institutional racism and the barriers that that puts in front of him to become fully expressed, to become fully who he is. I just have a lot of heart for what you and your son have been going through and his sister Mm-hmm. Right. Because it's, that's not easy for her as the younger sister either, because she's got to deal with the nonsense. Yes, <laughs> yes she does. She does. And she's only eight, 17. And my daughter is she's 10. Nice. Yep. And I raised my nephew. So he is. Oh, 
And I have a nephew that I raised that's eight. And I also have an older boy. He is 23. Wow. Damn. All right. So your trip to Disneyland that I saw on YouTube, how much of that family that you just mentioned was a part of that trip? So everyone was there. The Disney World, everyone was there. My cousin and her two twins were there. And my brother was there. So it, we, it was a nice trip. It was, in fact, I want to go back. I love Disney. <laughs> That's place of business. So I'm glad you made it. Yeah. All right. So let me, because I saw in one of your posts, you were talking a little bit about cultural appropriation. And, uh, spe- and again, I glanced, but looking at the second line scene of New Orleans. Yeah. <sighs> And as Mark can attest, this is for me a topic like that. I I believe 90% of the conversation about cultural appropriation is inappropriate. Mm-hmm. Um, I have to I ask just, you what that means, Greg. Like, what do you mean? That's a, that's a little confusing. That 90% of it's inappropriate? Yeah. Um, all right. For an example, my children... Um, one of our favorite books when they were growing up was this Br'er Rabbit Chronicles. And this professor put it together and we loved it. it I could, it's thick and we loved it. And um, the Son of the South and that ride, the um, Br'er Rabbit ride has a lot of heart for me personally. And, I personally, I, I think there's an element to creativity and that ultimately we are all vying to be a part of the human race. And therefore, our cultures are one. If we're to be one, we're one. Um, and the piece that I'm learning about is when a friend, um, they have like the Western days in elementary school and her young son who's Hispanics told like, yeah, you should put on a mustache and, you know, like he's told this by the adults of the school that I get like, okay, now I'm understanding cultural appropriation as a putting down of a people. But I think like, for instance, the second line thing, isn't that like, very strongly a Native American culture. You're talking about, okay, so you're probably talking about the Indians, not the second lines. Okay, yes, the Indians. So it's two different things. So the second line, okay. they, they went to dance with the music. And then the Indian culture, so there's some history to it. So, I mean, we're all American. So for the most part, most of us are all mixed up. If we all run DNA, we will have all kinds of different, you know, we, we, we come from everywhere. So the Indian culture in New Orleans is like a story behind it. And some of them say that they are honoring the Indians because some of them would help them like with slavery. So that is some of the story behind it. Some of them are just paying homage to the Indians that helped them, like when they were trying to run away and different things like that. So that's what that is about. So that's why they dress up like Indians. But some of those guys are actually Indians. So some of those guys actually have Indian in them. So I think when it, when it comes to cultural appropriation, um, I think it depends on your intent. So some people may do something to make fun of another culture. Now, if you're doing that, then, you know, I'm against it, but I don't think I'm not against someone, doing another um, culture. But back to the Indians, like some of those guys literally have Indian blood in them. For instance, my son, even though he's you know black and he's Hispanic, when we did his DNA test, he had enough Indian inside of his DNA that he could, if he wanted to, get a free scholarship. I believe it was in Arizona or something. So we are all mixed up. We have, you know, DNA from all over. So we don't know just by looking at someone, you know, what they are. That's the- I would like to offer an opinion with respect. And mm-hmm. this is the opinion I'm offering. When oppressed people gather together and share their mutual cultural experience of being oppressed, that's different than when advantaged cultures 
privileged cultures take on oppressed cultures, historical legacies and wear them as if they're entitled to wear them. And I think that's the distinction I would like to make. And so at adding into Greg's question, what is it about the use of the, the line in New Orleans that you were writing about in your blog post? How, what was the story in the blog post? What is it you were calling which, in? Which one we're talking about? The second line? Yeah. Yeah, so are you a dancer in the second line? Me, no. No? I don't dance. But no. you love it. My kids, I don't know how to dance. <laughs> I'm not, I don't second line, but I do like it. I love the culture. Um, so like I said, it's history behind a lot of that stuff. So we look at it and it looks fun and it's great to look at, but there is literally a history behind it. So one of the oldest second line groups in New Orleans is called YMO, Young Men Olympian. So what they used to do when people would die, like when black people would die, they would have enough uh, money to bury them. They would raise money for them. And then the second line came from the funeral. So they would, you know, parade. So that's where that really came from. So it's deeper than what most people see. It's not just dancing. It's literally a, it's, they call it a social, it's a social and pleasure club so they have fun but there's a benevolent club as well so they have they do good but you know most of us we just see the fun but there's a there's a reason that we do the things that we do so i did have one blog post and i'm not sure if this is the one you're referring to where i said it's our culture for sale right that's the one i am referring to okay so what that was about was that we do have a culture and we do have people that come in and they make a fortune of it. So that's more what I was talking about. So they're going to come in with a museum and they're going to come in and do this. But where, how is it bettering the culture? It's benefiting privileged cla- classes and not the, the culture that they're actually featuring. For that, yes. So yeah. for that, that's the only issue that I have with it. I'm glad that people are being more aware of Second Lines and Indians. But these guys that are putting these Indian costumes together, they work all year. They And those ex- those suits are expensive. And as, as time goes on, they get more and more expensive. So wouldn't it be nice if we had a museum that they were able to benefit from and actually make money to make these costumes. So that's what my blog post is about. And it's about is our culture for sale. So I, I enjoy people being involved in the culture. I'm, I'm glad that they see it. I mean, I, you know, I have the urban Ola blog, so my videos are seen all over the world. You know, they, they love it. And I, and I like that. They love that. Um, but it's just that we want to make sure that the people, the actual culture bearers are actually benefiting from the money that's being made on their backs. So what is the story with the museum? I don't know anything about it. Well, that's what the, that's what the blog was about. I, I may, uh, but basically they're making a museum and it's going to be all about New Orleans culture. I forgot what it was called. Uh, something about the dead. They were doing like our cemeteries and stuff like that. And it, and it's big. We have a, a huge culture and it's just like, it becomes commercialized at some point. So some, it's a very thin line when you're celebrating culture. When you're celebrating culture, you want to keep it cultural, but you don't want to turn it into a Disney World. So what are your thoughts about Mardi Gras? Like for me here in California, my thought of Mardi Gras is it's a place for 20-year-olds to go and get hammered and get beads and all the things they do to get beads. And see, that's that's the problem with, you know, with our unique culture. So when Mardi Gras first started, it was actually for the Catholics. So, you know, Catholics going to Lent. So Mardi Gras day, they would basically go out, get hammered and do all those things you just mentioned. And then the next day they would repent and be good for however many days it is for Lent. And then Easter would come. So that's how it really started. But then Mardi Gras just kept going and it just got bigger and bigger. And now it's more about beads, but it's not about what it's supposed to be about. It's really supposed to be about, you know, indulging and then telling God, I'm sorry for indulging yesterday. Let me be good for so many days. Thank you for taking the time to, to give our audience and us this background information. It's really helpful for us all as we learn how to manage the changing cultures that we live in. And the the main thing about the blog post that people need to know was that it was, um, I think, triggered by the presence of a group called Irish Zulu, which was basically um, people of Irish 
origin who were adopting the Zulu name, which is that's the kind of cultural misappropriation that I think we're really talking about. Because when you look at the photo in your blog post, they're kind of dressed as clowns and then they're adding the Zulu name to it. And that that can make wounds in people. Uh, they don't necessarily intend to make those wounds. Right. They're trying to celebrate, but it's the unconscious awareness or lack of awareness of your impact that is so important as we consider this thing. And there's an amazing Irish cultural history Maybe. that could be celebrated instead. Like bring, bring that some to the party, show the world who your ancestors were, right? That's amazing. Like that would re- definitely fit in with the idea, I think of Mardi Gras and, and this whole concept in my personal opinion. We have a huge Irish culture here, and when March comes, we have a ball. So March is full of Irish and Italian heritage. There's parades, there's everything. And, you know, some a lot of black people go to the parades. They wear green. They say, kiss me, I'm Irish. So they do that. So back to your point, it's all about intent. So I, I'm personally, I don't think it's a problem with going and celebrating Cinco de Mayo or celebrating St. Patrick's Day. I don't think it's a problem with celebrating because, like you said, Greg, we're all human. So we're all with the human race. So I don't think there's a problem with me celebrating St. Patrick. So the Indians have a night called St. Joseph Night, which is St. Joseph is Italian. He is, you know, Catholic. There's nothing wrong with celebrating other people. It's just that you, first of all, you want to at least understand what you're celebrating. We have people out there drinking and smoking and having a ball, but they have no idea who St. Patrick is or what he stands for. They're out drinking for Cinco de Mayo, but you have to know what is Cinco de Mayo. So at least try to understand the culture and to go to the Zulu picture. So let me explain something about Zulu. And a lot of people don't know this, but Zulu is also a social and pleasure club. It's also a club that um, it was created. So let me explain this. So Mardi Gras is, is, is I want to say it's, it could be, it could be super racist, right? So that's, that's Mardi Gras. And a long time ago, black people were not allowed to go to Mardi Gras. So since they were not allowed to go to Mardi Gras, we would have the Indians would perform. And then this, um, the Zulu club came. So Zulu would be the parade for black people to go to. So it was segregation, basically. Um, They didn't say it, but pretty much that's what it is. So Zulu was the parade that black people went to and everyone else went to the white parades, the Rex, you know, the King of Mardi Gras. So it's a, but it's just, it's just the way that, you know, the the country is, that's the way it was. So that's why it's kind of, sensitive when people talk about the Zulu parade. And I I don't think those people meant any harm by that picture, but I don't know if they clearly knew why Zulu was even created. Like Zulu was created so that black people could actually enjoy Mardi Gras because at one point they couldn't. That's why it happened. Well, currently now are Zulu and the Rex parade sort of at one parade now? No, it's still separate, but Zulu does have white members Zulu has white members and Rex, they may have a, you know, a black hero there, but Rex is mostly a white parade and it it has been that way. And in fact, they run around the same time. So if you come to Mardi Gras, Rex starts and Zulu starts pretty much around the same time. But there is a point where they kind of meet up and then they go along the same route. So there is more collaboration now. But I mean, I'm only in my 30s. I'm 37. But even when I was younger, it was not like that. So it was totally separate. But now it's they are more welcoming. So now so when people say the king of Zulu, they were always talking about Rex. But now when they say king of Zulu, they split the title and it's Rex and the king of Zulu. Wow. So Do you think that just on a day to day pace basis, the people of New Orleans are neighborly? I think so. I think we are more neighborly than a lot of other places. We are our culture. So if you look at some of my second line videos, you will see a lot of white people in those videos. So it's not like a black thing. A lot of people think it's a black thing and it was, it was created to be a black thing, but the Europeans, I won't say white people, that sounds wrong, but the Europeans, I guess, if that sounds better, they enjoy the second lines. They love it. You know, so they're there for, I think for one of my videos for Super Sunday, it was like literally more white people out there than black people. They enjoy it. They bring their kids. So I do love the camaraderie that we have. The culture brings people together. 
Like a lot of people, they look down on it because, you know, for misconceptions, but the culture literally brings people together. And that reflects kind of the aspirations that Greg and I have evolved out of our studies and the things that we do. One of the aspects of our partnership is that we've both studied something called A Course in Miracles, which has at its core this recognition that at some day in the future, we will have healed the divides amongst human people. And we stand for that. And so we do what we can to enlighten ourselves, to ask the difficult questions so that we might understand better, so that we can become part of the family and break down these kinds of social diseases, really, of you know discrimination and cultural misappropriation and othering and ableism and womanism, all of these things that basically create suffering for people are not necessary. And that as human beings, we have this opportunity to step into a more powerful way of living together. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you for that. Of course. So you guys got to come down and enjoy Mardi Gras. I mean, it's, it's a very good time. Um, I don't like Mardi Gras personally. It's a little too, too wild for me. It's not my speed, but yeah, I mean, it's fun. It's a, it's a great party. And like I said, it's the camaraderie. You're going to see people from all different walks of life being together, having fun and doing stuff. So it's well, most cool. people, most people think about new Orleans, they go right to that or to jazz. And as someone who's lived there a big portion of your life, what is it about where you live that really speaks to you? beyond those kinds of icons and, and sort of things. What is it about your life that you really love and the area that you live in? All right. So that's a difficult question for me because my family is involved in the culture when it comes to jazz music. So my cousin is a famous jazz singer musician. I will say that it's a, it's a musician family. So it's called the Boutte family, B-O-U-T-T-E. His name is John Boutte and he has traveled the world. Like they literally, they love John and I have a cousin named Trisha Boutte. Um, it's a couple of them. So it's the Boutte family. There was a show called Treme on HBO and he is the person that sings the, the intro. So John is really big. So I come from a family that is, you know, involved in everything. They lived in the Treme area. And so it's hard for me to not include that in the, the reason why I love. I didn't mean to exclude it necessarily. It's just to, to, to get a perspective of I, what it is about your life that you feel connected to it and why. And, and that's it. Yeah. So I'm not, not, not saying anything like that. Yeah. So I, I have to include it because it's there and I, I enjoy it so much. So I've traveled all around. I love different places, but it's just certain things about New Orleans that you can't get, you know, in other places. And that's one of those things. All right. So here's another trope that I live with. Um, voodoo is so, in my mind, integrated with the culture of New Orleans. Is that a viable, real practice in that area? It actually is. So... I, when I was growing up, I did not think, I mean, we always heard of voodoo, but I didn't think that people actually practice it. But it is as I became older and I started paying attention more, there are people that are really heavy into voodoo, voodoo and hoodoo and everything else. And they, they burn candles. So that is very real. I'm not sure how well you can see, but I have an evil eye chain. On. So we really, we really do believe in it. So, yes, I mean, I don't do voodoo. I'm Catholic. I don't do voodoo, but you know, voodoo has a lot of Catholicism in it. Um, Marie Laveau, she was Catholic as well. So she had Catholicism, but she still did what she had to do when it came to uh, doing her candle work and doing her, her spells. Now, I don't, like I said, I don't practice it, but I actually do believe that it's real. We have a story here in New Orleans, which is, it's, it's crazy. There was a candle shop, right? And a lot of people may not believe in candles and all that kind of stuff, but there's a candle shop. I think it's called J&J. You can look it up. There's the owner who's an older guy, uh, maybe in his 80s, and then he has a son that's about 50, and he has a worker that works there. So at one point, they all worked there, son, father, co-worker, right? They all died within a month of each other totally separate like it was it was crazy and the store has closed it is this happened in 2019 i believe the store closed after the last person died and the the wife refuses to go in there and even open it up because she thinks that it's something i mean it's it's strange but like 
it's a strange coincidence. Like three people died, three totally different ages, father, son, coworker, and they all died. So it's kind of scary. Well, it's interesting. Like, as you mentioned candle work, I'm thinking, all right, the Catholic church, you know, all the monasteries have that bank of candles that you can go and light a candle with. Um, in the Jewish religion, there's the everlasting light that's always lit. And incense is prominently used in Catholicism. So yes, my like grandma gave are, me the candles behind the candelabras behind me. I have candles in my my space. Yeah, it seems like a prominent element in spirituality. It's it's all it's. You would be surprised, like how much religion is involved in that because when I first went I went into the candle shop with my friend because she does you know she does practice some stuff and when I went there I was able to buy like the the cards with the saints like St. John saying you know I was able to get cards I don't know if y'all do this in other places but we put our cards uh, I think it's St. Michael we get St. Michael cards and we put them over our door sill so we feel that St. Michael protects us. So the same things that we do in Catholicism is very similar to what they do. It's the same thing. Yeah. But So your spiritual identification is with Catholicism. I'm weird because I do identify as Catholic because that's how I was raised. So I went to Catholic school, Catholic church. As I got older, I started going to a Baptist church. So I did go to a Baptist church. My kids go to Episcopal school, but I mean, I also list. I also read about candles and stuff like that. So I'm I'm spiritual. I believe in God. I am a Christian, but you know, for sharing that with us because it's a tender thing for people because this this aspect of our human self that that peeks into what we can only call the spiritual or unseen world, it's fraught with potential harm because people are persecuted for their beliefs or or if you make a misstep in your practices there can be consequences depending on your belief system yet we all have this sense that there's something beyond the physical that there's something operating that is uh the fire of life or the 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 light of the world or however you want to term it right and so greg and i often talk you know about these sorts of things in this conversation that we're having this ongoing conversation, because the idea of us waking up to the potential of humanity is something that Greg and I really want to help bring about. And that's part of one of the underlying reasons for this podcast is to bring people closer together, talk about difficult things in a way that helps us all wake up a little bit more and be more conscious and aware of each other. Um, I want to ask a question. (laughs) was your upbringing in a traditional household with a mother and father? Mine, no. So were you raised by a single mother? I was kind of raised, like I would say, by my grandmother. So I was, I don't say thick, but my parents were, they came from the era where crack hit the community. So my parents were at one point addicted to drugs. So I was not raised by them. They, I mean, both of them have, you know, it wasn't a long stint, but it was a stint nonetheless that they that they had, you know, drugs. So I was not raised in a in a home. I was raised by like my grandmother. So I was raised outside of my home, and I stayed there. I didn't, you know, I didn't want to go back. My mother is fine. My father has since um, passed, but I mean, I, I don't think I I missed a beat. My grandmother, she did a, a well a great job. I mean, in fact, I call her my mom. So whenever I say my mom, I'm talking about her. So the follow up to this question is that more and more we see women raising families right on their own or with less help than one might hope or assume. What is you what is the cost to those women? What is that that they give up? What are the sacrifices and what does that cost them from your point of view? To me, I think that like I was saying earlier about independence is more of a survival mechanism that we have. But the problem is a lot of men. Well, one, it, it unfortunately, it makes our kids grow up not looking to, for a traditional life. They think it's normal to just have one parent. So when they grow up, they don't look to be married. You know, when we were younger, we said, I'm going to get married. I'm going to, you know, whatever. But these kids these days don't really do that. 
because they see so many one-sided relationships that they think that it's okay. And it's and I'm, saying, I'm not saying it's not okay, but that's what they think is the norm. Whereas growing up in the 80s, the norm was a mom and a dad. But now it may be just a mom or just a dad, and it's happened more often than it's not happening. So the un, unfortunate consequences of that is the fact that we don't have as many marriages anymore. Some of our black men look at black women and then they get turned off by their independence. So they say, oh, you say you're independent. You don't need a man. It's not that I'm saying I don't need a man. It's saying that yes, I am kind of saying that I don't need a man because I have done it without him. But that's not saying I don't want one. That's just mm-hmm. really need him. I have been doing it thus far. However, we have been um, made into the villain because we say that we're independent and it's, I mean, it's not a black thing because I have a lot of white friends and I had some on my podcast that said the same thing about being independent. But unfortunately black women kind of get a bad name for saying that they're like, Oh, they ends you know, it's a independent would seem like a good thing, but for some well, reason look at it negatively. Well, as a single parent and a single female parent, the world calls up a fierceness in you. That's just part of the reality of what you have to do to earn a living and manage the kids. And it, from my point of view, it closes the amount of time for self-introspection, for rest, for personal reflection and, and clarification of you know your own path and identity. You, you kind of get consumed by what's required of you. And the fierceness that you have to develop in order to meet those needs is formidable. It's, it's a powerful thing. And um, I don't particularly think it's a bad thing. I admire powerful women who've developed this piece and their independence. And I have a soft spot for a tender spot for how deep down I know they yearn for the connection that would bring them a little relief and a little support, but not from a weak place, but from a place of what more could my life be? So let me ask Donna, what does your current husband bring to the relationship that supports you being independent while also supporting partnership? Well, he brings a lot. He brings a lot to the table. So he, he, for so long I had to be superwoman. So to have someone else is a blessing to me because I get a little help. So about two weeks ago, my car was stolen. So, I did not have a car, but I had to bring my kids to school. So it was kind of hard. But because I have him, I'm able to, and you know, he would let me use his truck and stuff like that. But if it was just me by myself, I don't know, you know, what I would do if I didn't have that. Because transportation is hard. And then my kids go to different schools. So, yes, one can say you can Uber or you can catch a bus. But it's extremely difficult to get three different kids to school on a bus or Uber. Yeah, but it's, it's so do you do you feel still strong, independent woman while in a marriage relationship? Yes, I do because I am still I'm still her. You know, I'm still that yeah. that I, he comes from sisters, so he is used to women bossing him around. So. I just fell into place. So he's pretty good. He does a really good job with um, supporting us and being there for me. But I kind of, you know, I won't say I run the show, but, you know, (laughs) I do. Happy wife, happy life. (laughs) (laughs) How did you find your way into being an author? Um, So I always wanted to. Right. I always wanted to do it, but I just never did. And I always had stories in my head from when I was younger. My grandmother would, lives in this place called Madisonville, and we would go visit her. And uh, Madisonville has turned into like a luxurious area now, but at one point it wasn't. So we had all kind of cool stories going on, and she would tell us stuff, and I would be able to, you know, I would be able to like, you know, tell those stories. So that's how that kind of started. And then, but it would always be in my head. I never actually put it to paper. And, and how many you, books do you have published now? I believe it's it's four, four that I have that's actually published. Wow! Congratulations. Thank you. But um, two, two of them are eBooks, and two of them are actual books, like novels. And I have another one that's coming. You know, with the honesty series, I have a, a third one that's in the works. But 
since I think since I booked this show, Honesty was chosen to get adapted into film. So I'm going to hold off on three because, in, you know, in case we have to make some, you know, changes. Wow. So tell us a little bit about how Honesty is going to become a film. What's that journey like for you? So the journey is fun. So right now I am in the we are in like the paperwork phase. So we have to, you know, create like an LLC so that we can start doing the funding because that's important. I have a budget, but it's a small budget. But I am so confident that this story is so good that I want to make sure that it's done correctly. And I'm not saying I don't want it to be low budget, but I really want money behind it because the story is really good. I mean, I, I know everybody's going to think that about their stories, but I believe that this story could stand up to most of the TV that's on now, like the, the powers and the wires of the world. And of course, Tyler Perry comes, you know, to my mind as a strong entity in the entertainment world. Are you like potentially connected with Atlanta and the scene going on there as part of the production? I wish I was like, that would be awesome if I could make that connection with Tyler Perry. Um, I would love that. But unfortunately, I don't know Tyler Perry, Um, but I wish I did. So that because I would be able to really, really do my story the right way. And that's how I want to do it. So I don't want to rush it. I want to make sure it's done correctly, because like I said, it's a really good story and it, it includes culture. It includes a little bit of everything. So everybody, it's it's not um, most people would think, oh, it's a, a like a hood story, but it's really not. It's really a good story. It has a, a great you know background. It could happen in any city. Well, minus the, the culture part, but it could happen anywhere in the world. And when, when you, you say when you say we, who's the we? You and you said we're gathering the paperwork. We're it sounds the, like you have a team involved. I do have a team for the movie. So the, these are the production people that's going to be helping me to. Well, these are the people that are shooting the movie. So that's the team. We have to put the you know the paperwork together to get the the more fun more funding. All right. Good so luck. when you when you Thanks. think about storytelling. Right. You you always told stories because you said your grandmother told you stories and then you you found your way to writing books in that process. Do you kind of form pictures in your mind of what's happening in the scenes as you write them? And how do you plan to translate that vision, that internal vision to the screen? So when I write and as I write, I'm writing it as it's as it's on screen. So I see everything that I'm that I'm doing it's not planned because I don't know what's going to like I really don't know what's going to happen when I when I start writing it just kind of happens so people are always like can you put me in your book I'm like I could put you in there but I don't know what's going to happen to you <laughs> you might not like it <laughs> I don't know if you want to get in there but yes I do do that and that's pretty much it so the, the TV was easy so once they came to me and they approached me about doing turning into a movie I was like okay that's easy let's let's do it it's, it's already so I'm like my characters in the book I didn't really describe them how they look because if it was going to go into film I wanted to make sure it would be an easy process to cast someone so it sounds you like have- you had the film or TV in mind from the beginning as you started writing I did so my favorite show is the wire. So as I was writing that, I was always thinking about the wire. So I was, I had, it's big on character development because I love how the wire David Simon does a really, really good job with characters. So I wanted to make sure that, because if you, I don't know if you guys watched the wire, but we watching the wire and we actually rooting for some of the bad guys, but that's because David Simon did such a good job making you understand those bad characters and they weren't really bad. Right. We're all humans. Yep. Right. Trying to make it through this together and do do the best with what we have, according to the moral convictions and vision that we inherit partially, but generate from our own lives. Yep. Yeah. All right. This might get my foot crammed way down my throat with this direction. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> but I noticed uh, one of your recent podcast episodes um, was about um um, the sensual life and sexuality. I forget the exact title, but it seemed like there was a woman. Oh, no. Let's see if I can find it. Anyway. <laughs> so let me ask you this. So you seem, if, 
Whoops, sorry about that. Um, if you don't, again, foot way down in my throat, you seem like a very vibrant, juicy woman. Thanks. Wow. <laughs> so how do you keep the elements of motherhood vibrant and alive along with this juice that's in partnership and marriage with your husband and you have a daughter who's watching you. Mm-hmm. I may seem juicy, but I am not juicy at all. <laughs> and that's, that's actually a point of the podcast. So like most of the podcasts, when I'm talking about stuff like that, I'm listening to learn because I'm kind of Pollyanna when it comes to certain stuff. I told you I was raised by my grandmother. So certain things we don't do, we don't talk about. Like I didn't even curse in front of my parents. I still don't curse in front of them. Um, So you might have caught a good clip, but I'm actually not juicy at all. (laughs) So the people who are on the show were probably talking more about certain things. And I'm like, okay, you know, but I wanted to learn about it because, you know, I'm a, I call myself boring all the time. I think I can spice up my life a lot. It's not spiced at all, but I'm I'm glad you thought it is because that makes me feel good. All right. All right. <laughs> What's there? There's <laughs> some green shoots. Yeah. But I mean, that's, I, I appreciate it because I like to, you know, get different perspectives and hear from different people. And those, those podcasts were some of my favorite because I was able to hear a different perspective because like I said, was raised by an older person and, you know, women don't say or do different things, but we live in a different society now where women say things that we would never say before. So it's, it's different and I'm learning and I'm adjusting and I'm not judging. I'm learning not to judge because at first I'll be like, Oh, you know, but I'm kind of cool a little bit with hearing different things now. So from what you're learning, and I have two daughters of my own. So I asked this with them in mind as well. Is there a way you can support your own daughter's sensual life while also teaching her to say no? Like, I love this phrase, like, no is a complete sentence. Yeah. So my daughter is very strong-willed. She is 10. She is every bit of, she has an aunt. Um, and that's what her, da- her dad's brought sister. So she is every bit of feisty like her. So I don't have any, I don't think that she's going to be somebody that can be easily walked over. I am the more emotional person that always feels sorry. And I don't want to say no, but my daughter's not like that. So she probably could teach me more than I could teach her. Uh, to- <laughs> all right, cool. Cool. <sighs> <laughs> well, thank you for that line of. <laughs> what else? I know y'all got some more. I'm interested in the filmmaking aspect because I have that going on in my own life. And you were you approached by them or did they find you through your book and then reach out to you? Yes. Ooh, it looks like we almost lost Greg. Yes. Um. So. It's it's something it basically that's how it was. So I wrote my book, I believe, in 2020. That's when I started the book, 2020. And I put it out. And like I said, it was a good book. But the problem with having a good book is if nobody else hears it, then nobody knows it's a good book. So I decided to record my book. I said, I'm going to rec- I'm going to put this book on YouTube and I want to get it out because I don't want money to be a barrier to keep people from hearing this story. I like, I want everybody to hear it. So I put it on YouTube, but I got, well, I made it private. So something told me, just go ahead and make your video public. I made my video public and started getting views out the wazoo. I mean, I was getting views and views and views and so many comments and literally they were all positive comments. So it made me realize that people really did like this story. So, and I was hoping that it only takes one person to hear it that has that connection to take it to the next level. And that's one of the reasons why I put it to TikTok and I put it to YouTube because I knew somebody would come out. So a friend that I know from years ago reached out to me and he was like, I've been hearing what's going on and I made a connection with some producers and we're looking for a story. And would you like to have your story made into a movie? I was like, definitely. So that's how that went. I had to, it's really hard when you don't have much network and you have to network on your own. You have to get out there. You have to put it out there. It's just getting it to the right person. So I was um, fortunate enough to have somebody to hear that story that 
people wanted to, you know, push it. And everybody was saying this should be a movie. This should be like that was a lot of the comments. And I already knew that's how it would be because the story is filled with a lot of truth, a lot of truth. So those stories are most of the stories in that book is real. So there's honesty is the name of the character or. Yeah. Yes. And what. What's what are how would you describe honesty to someone who's never been exposed to the book? Um, okay. The, the character. The character. Okay. Yeah. So the way she is, she is a young girl. Basically, the way I say it, she's a young girl that's just trying to make it, and that's basically what she's doing. So, just to give you a quick little synopsis, honesty's parents. Her dad was going to be like a famous NFL player. So he was he went to LSU, he went to college and he had all these awards. So he was like, NFL, I'm on my way. Unfortunately, something happens and he gets injured and his career is over. So honesty is, the you know, a child young at that time. So she has to go on with life because when she was, you know, younger, everyone thought that they would be rich and they would have this and they would have that. So they were kind of put back down to 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 the back to the regular world and her father and her mother they they did not take it well so the mother was able to bounce back and go find another man basically but the father had a really really tough time and his tough time caused him to do some some strange things and he did that and it completely changed the trajectory of their lives so the rest of the book and all of that happens like in the first three chapters of the book, very short, it gets to the point. And then from there on, honesty is trying to get back the life that she thought she was supposed to have from the beginning. And is she a reflection of the aspect of yourself that was super mom? No. Well, honesty doesn't have kids. She's still, she's still rather young. Honesty is probably the person I wish that I could be. Because honesty is, you know, she's fearless, she's fierce, she has everything going on. She's probably, you know, she's not me. I wish she was. But, she, I mean, she has a lot going on. She's very smart. But she's making some, at this point, she's making some bad decisions. And she's going to be, you know, living with those decisions that she's making. Sounds good. It does. It sounds really thrilling. It makes me super curious as to what's happening in the book and, and how this is going to play out. Is it going to be a TV movie or a TV series? I would prefer it to be a series, but they want to do a movie. They want to do book one as one movie. They want to do two as a movie. I would prefer to do a series, but I don't know. They want to do a movie. And, and, and it's very short. Like I said, it's a short read, um, but they want to just make one. And it's it's good enough to do one. My favorite is actually two. So two is the really, really good part of it because it's the nitty gritty. When I did one, remember, I was just trying to trying to see how things were going to go. And I didn't know it was going to, you know, take off like it did. So one is very, very short. Like, I forgot how many pages, but it's very short. 45 minute, one hour read. And nice. you're done. Yep. I took stories. So, I'm not gonna say who, but somebody in the book um, commits suicide. Hmm. Yeah. And yeah. That's a completely that is a completely true story. So most of the stuff that happened, it was it was that I won't say who did it. Um, but one of the characters does, you know, that does happen to them. And that was really a story that happened, you know, within my family. So actually, my brother committed suicide in 2004. Mm. I have a lot of in. So in the story, the person that commits suicide does have some kids. So when you hear it, you'll hear the story from their children. Mm. So you how that impacted them. Is that how you ended up raising your nephew, I think you said? Um, no. That wasn't. My, no, his kids, my brother's kids are the youngest one. They're all older. They're all old now. I think the youngest one may be like 20. Okay. Yeah, I have my my sister's son. Wow. Do you understand your brother's choice? Do I understand? Um, Not really, but I try my best to. So that's what I have in the book. So in the book, there's a person, like I said, that commits suicide. And then you'll hear, you'll, you will hear different versions from everybody responding to the same incident. 
And that's pretty much how it happens in real life. So when someone commits suicide, you think about their point of view, and then you have to think about how it affects everyone else. So some of the kids will tell their story about what happened. This one, and but and it's all going to be different stories, but it's one situation. But of course, we can't hear from that person because they're no longer here. So that's the same thing with my brother. We don't know. We can only speculate what happened and what he was thinking about, but it still affects everyone, you know, a lot. In fact, his birthday was October 3rd. So it, it, it affects everyone, you know, and that was in 2004. So, you know, the next year we had Katrina. So we had a little, we had a couple tough years coming. And I always told my, my brother always told me, um, well, I'm going to teach you how to drive. He said he's going to show me how to drive. And he never showed me how to drive. So I blame him now because I drive with two feet. So everybody teases me because I drive with two feet. And I said, my brother told me he was going to take me to drive. And he didn't. So, so I mean, wow. everything, for the most part, most of that book is loosely based on true events. Right, right. It's and you said you've got book two and three, two's done, and then three is in the works. Two is out. Three is mostly done. It's just not released yet because I wanted to see how things were going to go with, with TV. Because, yeah. you know, sometimes things change. And I know I, I have rights to my book so I can keep it the way I want, but I don't want to, you know, mix it up too much and have it too, being too different. So I have to wait to see how, how things go with production and then I can release part three. Understood. When Katrina happened, were you living in the neighborhoods that were really affected by that? Yeah, so my neighborhood... Luckily, that was right when school was starting. I went to LSU, so I literally had just moved. I hadn't finished moving all my stuff because, you know, school started in August, like that, probably that week. I was still moving my stuff, and I did not have everything yet into my apartment for school. So my my home was in one of those areas that was completely uh, devastated. I remember seeing my neighborhood on TV, and I saw the interstate which is high. It's an elevated interstate. And I saw the interstate and I saw the rooftops. So I was just like, you know, I really, it's, it's, I was speechless because I've, I've never seen anything like that in my life. Has the community recovered from that or is there still healing happening? It's a lot still happening. It's not completed. Hmm. Well, Blessings to your community on that healing. Like we, we have been given so much. Like when you look at the history of jazz music and the evolution of New Orleans music and how that's impacted the rest of the country and the world with the gift of that music, that alone is a, just a monumental piece of history and, and the joy and the emotional release and the access to spiritual contact through music is something you can't say too much about because it's, it runs so deep. One of the things that I wrote about when I was in high school was the history of, of jazz and the evolution of music in that. And I learned so much just learning about Fats Waller and about how, you know, the church and the way that access to instruments played a role in creating this music. And then the way that the diaspora of this culture invented a whole new way of thinking about music. It literally changed everything. Mm-hmm. And at New Orleans, like talk about magic, talk about something. There's something in the air and in the water and the plants down there that and the culture down there that really gifted us all something. And one of the things that Greg and I do on every podcast is we ask this musical question. But I don't want to ask it right now because it seems inane and, and useless. Well, no. right? Specifically, no, we got to ask it. We gotta. Well, we can. I'm gonna, you can. But I'm going to ask a different one. Donna D, what is the most potent musical artist? What breathed life into you from music? Who did you receive the most of a gift from? I don't have a gift. <laughs> I mean, it was inspiration and, and helped you get through the life that you lead. Who, what, what musician has like been the source for your vitality and kept you going and that really spoke to your soul? Hmm. I like rap music. Rap? I like rap. Hip-hop? I like, yes, I do. So I like, like if I, I had to pick music, 
that I would have to listen to, it would be like rap music. Not hardcore rap, but I like Jay-Z. I like Drake. I like Lil Wayne. Those are like my favorites. So, um, it may be a little R&B. I don't really listen to too much of you would think. I don't listen to a lot of jazz, except for my cousin. Like I said, my family music that I that I listen to, I've been listening to that for years. We do jazz. Well, not we. They do jazz fest every year. So that kind of music, yes, I do listen to it. But for the most part, like when I'm in my car, turn on Drake. Drake. All right. So we probably know the answer, but here's our question. Eminem or Foo Fighters? Foo Fighters. I did not know the answer. <laughs> I'll just play Eminem. <laughs> okay. Uh, that was uh, good. Jokes that on us. Good. <laughs> well, I'm sorry. We have a hard out that I need to respect, but I've really appreciated your energy and your sharing yourself with us today. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. And we hope that you'll reach out to us when you release another chapter or another book or when you get ready to launch the film. We'd love to hear from you and love to support you in that process and stay in touch. Of course. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Recording stopped.